And welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be discussing technical rock climbing. So we will cover free soloing uh, in the giant El Capitan in Yosemite and the huge risks that the climbers take when they do that. And then we will move on to the first summit of the Ogre, which is a challenging tale, which includes the highest technical climbing in the world. Before I jump in, as always, just a reminder to go over and follow me on Instagram. I'm at when it goes wrong pod and to give me a rating, hopefully a good one, <laughs> wherever you are, uh, whether you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or, or anything like that. But yeah, I think that's everything. So we're going to talk about two separate things that I managed to kind of squeeze together today. There's a bit of a tenuous link between the two stories, but I'm hoping I've made it work and it will become clear why I've combined kind of El Cap and the Ogre, even though, you know, they're on opposite sides of the world. One's a mountain, one is a big block of granite, but it's my podcast, right? So <laughs> I've decided that that works. And I've wanted to talk about free soloing and kind of that type of intense rock climbing for ages, but it's one of those ones where... It's not enough for a full episode, so I'm hoping that this is a, a good a good mix. Um, and yeah, so we're going to talk a lot about technical rock climbing. And I call it technical rock climbing just to kind of like delineate it from mountain climbing. And we've talked a lot about mountain climbing and summiting and the altitude and freezing cold temperatures and all of this kind of stuff. But it's very, they're two different disciplines, really, because when you climb some big mountains, so for example, like Everest, you're probably not doing that much kind of technical, hard rock climbing. You, sometimes you're just literally slogging it up a big hill and you, you know, using um, some axes and crampons and stuff to help help you get up there. Uh, but you're not necessarily kind of scaling a vertical wall if you know what I mean compared to rock climbing and technical rock climbing which is very much here's a vertical wall how can I you know find these little handholds and footholds to make my way up there and so rock climbing can be done as part of mountaineering they can be the same thing uh, but then it can also be its own thing so yeah similar but different. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, rock climbing in this case, I think we're a bit more familiar with because if you think about indoor rock climbing, bouldering, which is very popular now, you know, it's about how you kind of get to the top of that of that vertical surface. And within rock climbing, there's different types of rock climbing. Um, so there is aided climbing, which is where you use equipment to kind of help you get up the sheer cliff that you're trying to climb so for example if, if there's like if it's very if it is very sheer and there isn't many like handholds or footholds and you might use equipment to kind of like drill pegs in that you can use to to leverage yourself you might use you know kind of pulleys and and this type of thing to to get you up there so that's what we mean by aided climbing and it's still really hard. Um, don't get me wrong. It's not like, oh, the equipment helps me. So therefore it's really easy. It's still really hard. It's just a very different kind of skill set. There's then free climbing, which is the opposite of this, which is where you climb, you still climb with ropes. So you still have ropes, but the ropes are just there to, to kind of save you if you fall. The, rope, the ropes aren't used to help you actually climb up in any way. So they're just a safety feature. Um, you just kind of clip them on and keep them, keep them taut as you go to make sure that, yeah, if you fall off, you're not going to plunge to the bottom. And but actually all the climbing itself in free climbing is under your own power, under your own own steam. 
And it's really challenging, uh, especially on, you know, some types of walls where it's very hard to kind of like get grip. And this is where you see pictures of, you know, people like literally clinging on with like the very tips of their fingers um, and the very tips of their toes. And sometimes, you know, I see people and I'm like, how are you even attached to that wall? <laughs> like, I would not be able to do it. I don't have um, the, the finger strength. So yeah, so that's aided climbing versus free climbing. There's then solo climbing, and solo climbing just means that you climb alone. So it can either be free or aided. But then there is another type of climbing called free solo climbing, which is what uh, we're going to talk about. And that is where you climb without any equipment at all. So this is like completely no no safety equipment, no ropes to just kind of make sure that you get caught when you fall. It's literally where you just go, cool, I'm going to climb up that entire giant mountain with absolutely no safety equipment or anything. It's just relying on on themselves, your your body and your skill to to kind of make sure that you don't you don't die. Uh, and often they'll do it by themselves, so that's why it's kind of solo. So it's free and solo, so that then they yeah basically being one with the mountain, right? And they they go off a climb with no equipment and just by themselves. Um, and it is for very serious kind of like very good professional climbers ones with lots and lots of skill and the kind of drive to want to take these risks uh in reality i think when you look at who actually does free solo climbing it's obviously a lot of kind of like young middle-aged men um who i think kind of don't have the maybe emotional ties to to things so they're kind of very willing to take all of these risks and there have been lots of deaths in this category so a lot of the quite famous free solo climbers have eventually died at some point whilst doing free soloing because you, there's no room for error right and so you you might be able to do it a thousand times but on that one time you make a mistake there's no there's no coming back like you are you are off and and you will fall so it's yeah a very intense and scary <laughs> type of climbing and so then in terms of kind of like when you do the climbs they obviously kind of grade the different types of climb that there are to to show you how difficult or how easy they are um and how vertical they are as well so uh, in there's one called the yosemite scale which is what a lot of people follow and it went it used to go up to 5.10 5.10 but then it then kept getting, they kept, kept finding harder and harder walls that they were actually able to climb. So then it was like 5.10A, B, C, D. And then eventually now they've actually added new ones. So it now goes up to 5.15D or 5.15D is the hardest type of wall that people are able to climb. Very, very difficult and very kind of walls that, you know, maybe only one person would be able to actually summit. So we're going to bring a bit of this kind of free soloing and this technical climbing to life uh, by talking a bit about El Capitan. And El Capitan is deep in the Yosemite National Park in California. And you might have heard of it. It's a very famous rock. Um, and it's basically just a ginormous hunk of granite. Like it's just this ginormous granite rock. And it's a pretty sheer face. And it's like the mecca of technical rock climbing. Like everyone who is into technical rock climbing and really, you know, enjoys a kind of challenge will eventually want to try and climb El Cap. Um, and there's huge numbers of routes that go up El Cap, uh, some easier, some harder. They're all kind of graded. And yeah, people spend their whole lives climbing El Cap and, and doing all of the different routes. And each route basically is kind of split into what they call pitches. So in order to climb it, you can you need to complete each pitch. So you need to have climbed each pitch. And sometimes you might 
spend a lot of time on the wall because technically you could climb from the bottom to the top in like three hours right but a lot of people will spend like days and days on the wall attempting pitches and just doing them again and again until someone until you finally complete one Um, and they will you know potentially like climb up and down in different ways to to where their equipment is and then go back and and try the pitch and and keep climbing so it's a very different type of climb compared to to summiting a mountain where obviously you want to get to the top and then you want to come down this is like how can you complete the the routes up to the top and complete these like very difficult rock climbing pitches and it's again very difficult different to climbing a mountain because there's no such thing as you know base camp or all the camps that we we talk about in in mountain climbing you basically have to carry everything with you and that includes where you sleep so there it are sometimes like little ledges that you can put your stuff on but oftentimes you have to bring your own ledge so they have these thing called porter ledges and it's basically like a giant hammock that they set up which is attached to the cliff itself they look terrifying if i'm honest and they just yeah drill them in and then you basically just lie on this giant hammock however many thousand feet up in the air and you also have to take all your food or your water up with you, which is difficult in some cases if they're going to be on the wall for a long time, um, such as they're trying a different route, then they might be able to bring the water up and down. So they use like pulleys and stuff to bring it up. But yeah, it's it's tricky uh, to, to get all of the supplies up there. And not only that, but you can't go to the toilet on the wall um, because there's usually someone climbing behind you and it's just a sheer face to the bottom. Uh, so they have to bottle and bag their excretions as they go (laughs) which is unfortunate i feel so yeah it's a very very different type of climb and very different equipment and things that you need in order to do it in California temperature does also play a part it's not the same as obviously the giant mountains but there are are extremes so like at the bottom it can get very hot uh, but then it gets cooler as you climb so you've got to kind of deal with different types of temperatures and they actually prefer to climb in the cold like so like early in the morning and at night because you get more friction on the rock at night and so when they're trying to climb very difficult and sheer cliffs it's actually better to go when it's a bit colder and it does get storms in Yosemite and you can get stuck up halfway because you know a storm's hit and they can't can't move and uh, the majority of the fatalities on the wall have been due to changes in conditions so things like that storms coming different different things like that that hitting them and there have been over 30 fatalities on the wall so it's definitely risky definitely a a risky climb there have been two famous summits of El Cap in the last few years and both have good movies made made out about them, which is why I want to talk about it because I basically do episodes on whatever I happen to be watching or listening to at the time. Uh, so the first one was called uh, was about climbing the Dawn Wall. And the Dawn Wall was a bit of El Cap, which was basically deemed unclimbable. So it was an area that was like so sheer, it didn't have any handholds, it didn't really have any way of getting traction. And so basically everyone had just left it alone and just assumed that that bit of it was unclimbable. 
And then the rest of it, the rest of the route on the Dawn wall climb was basically let's take the hardest bits of all the rest of the routes and kind of string them together into the hardest rock climb in the world. And most people were like, no, this is never going to happen. <laughs> um, like, that's just an impossible, impossible route to climb. Uh, but a guy called Tommy Coldwell uh, had really wanted to climb it for a long time. And he basically had been prepping for years, climbing different pitches along this this route. And Coldwell actually has a very interesting background which he um, was out climbing in Kyrgyzstan in 2000 with uh, some other climbing buddies and he was kidnapped and held captive by by rebels um, and they, they had them for quite a few days it was quite a harrowing story uh, and they only survived as Caldwell basically threw one of them off a cliff I think I think they survived but clearly not a, not a pleasant experience and then they managed to go and get help and get rescued so Yes, very interesting background and very dedicated to climbing over the over the many years. And he also had lost one bit of his finger as part of some of the climbs as well. So if you imagine how hard it is to climb like with the very tips of your fingers and then you lose one, um, I think that must be very hard. Uh, but yeah, so he really wanted to do this climb, but he really struggled to find anyone that would do it with him because everyone was like, it's impossible. I'm not going up there. But he did eventually find someone called Kevin Georgeson. Um, who decided to join him and they eventually made the attempt. Uh, It took them 19 days on the wall and they had to kind of attempt several pitches many times in order to get to the summit. Like there was some, you know, there's some bits of it where they basically like have to jump from one bit to another and then like catch themselves on this like, you know, a ledge that's like an inch long. Like it was, yeah, mad how, how hard it must be for them. Uh, but they did successfully do it in 2015 um, and they managed to get get to the top. And oh, since then, since 2015, only one other person has successfully done it. Only one other person has gone, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to carry on and do that climb. It, it looked very, very difficult, I have to say. The second climb was was one which was free soloing. So as per the title, uh, the second climb was by a guy called Alex Honnold. And he climbed all of Yosemite, all, all of Yosemite, he climbed all of El Cap without any ropes or safety measures. And so he's like a very experienced climber, had done loads of climbing in Yosemite and did a lot of free soloing, but no one had, had free soloed El Cap before because, like I say, it's so tall that any, just one little mistake and you're going to fall off and potentially, probably, like, very likely die. And he trained for a really long time. In the training, he did have a few accidents where he did hurt himself. But he had like a team filming him through all of this. And so he he went and attempted it and then backed out because he was, you know, it didn't feel right and it wasn't very good. Uh, but he did eventually do it. He eventually like went real fast. And there was, again, like certain bits of it where like not necessarily easy bit but the easier bit bit you feel confident in but there were certain parts of the climb where it was definitely going to be the bits that had the highest risk um yeah bits where you had to like traverse so like move across and, and kind of like cling cling on and climb up like vertical shoots and all this stuff uh, but he did successfully do it so he just went up one of the kind of standard routes and he did it in three and a half hours and yeah, even through some sections which were were pretty risky and where a lot of people have have fallen. Obviously, all of them are connected to rope, so it's all right. But yeah, managed to managed to get up to the top, which was yeah, very very impressive. And free solo is one of those bits of the sport that's kind of 
some people agree with it and some people don't. Like a lot of sponsors stopped sponsoring free solo climbers because they would thought it was just trying to encourage people into something that was just too risky. Like why, why would you do it? Why not just use a rope type thing? Like what benefit are you getting out of this? Uh, so it's a bit, it's one of those kind of controversial areas. Uh, but yeah, I think he is currently the only person that has free soloed LCAP. So that's kind of a bit of background and a bit of interesting chat about technical rock climbing. And so now we're going to move to the yoga. (laughs) Very different topic, but um, I promise it is very vaguely connected. So the yoga is a huge mountain in the Karkaram Ranges in Pakistan. Um, it's also known as uh, Bainthabrak, as it's its actual name, uh, rather than its nickname of the yoga. And it is one of the mountains which many people thought of kind of climbing in the great era of trying to climb all the mountains first. So back in like the 70s, when people were going out and trying to, all the Westerners were trying to summit all the, these different mountains, quite a few people really wanted to summit the yoga for the first time. Um, and Doug Scott was a British mountaineer and a very good rock climber Um, and he definitely really liked technical rock climbing alongside mountaineering and he climbed some of the big walls around the world including El Cap and so Scott himself really wanted to do some more big mountain climbs Uh, he had done the southwest face of Everest in 1975 but in 1977 he was very taken in by the ogre because basically on the top of the ogre is this like huge graphite tower um, and the only way to actually summit the mountain would be to do this quite technical rock and ice climb for about 800 feet at the top of the mountain. And so he really wanted this kind of mix of climbing, cold, altitude, all of it together to, to provide a real challenge and be the first ones to summit the mountain. So there you go. That's how they're connected. <laughs> There's basically like a version of El Cap on the top of this mountain. Uh, so they are somewhat linked together. <laughs> And so, yeah, so in 1977, Scott decided that he was going to head out there to the Ogre um, and form a team and make a trip out of it. And so in his team, he had quite a few people. So he had a guy called Clive Rowland, who was a very established climber from Sheffield, and he ran a mountain climbing equipment shop. Um, And he was very, very supportive and very helpful and like had helped to save quite a lot of people. Uh, The next guy was a guy called Mo Anthony. Um, and he was a very strong rock climber. He had been in quite a few accidents, though. In one case, he was stuck on Mount Blanc in France um, when six other people died, which is very tragic. Um, and he was also kind of into the, in the equipment business. He had made an ice axe and a specialised type of helmet. Then we also had uh, Paul Braithwaite, also known as Tut, and he was from Oldham. Uh, and he did lots of the first ascents in the UK of, of all the different peaks across across there. Then there was also a guy called Chris Bonnington, uh, who was from London and had experienced was an experienced climber, led loads of trips to Everest and other high mountains. And then finally, a guy called Nick Estcourt, who was from the south coast, and he was yeah he was a systems analyst and a mountaineer, but he sadly died the following year in an avalanche, which is a bit tragic. And they had also planned to invite a man called Dougal Haston, but sadly in the January he had gone skiing and was caught in an avalanche. Um, and so, yeah, they had planned to to bring him along too, but unfortunately he died very soon before, which was very sad. Um, and that was a big kind of impact to the team before they went, uh, but they wanted to go and, and climb and, yeah, kind of do it in his memory. 
They'd also planned to bring along a doctor, which they did technically need as part of a group climbing in that bit of the world at that time. Uh, but they, uh, the doctor dropped out. And so they had to kind of convince the, the tourism board that one of the group had enough like first aid training and a bit of medical training to pass off as their doctor. Uh, but luckily, the tourism department were very supportive uh, and they kind of said it was fine. Uh, there was um, some an American team quite nearby who had two doctors with them. And so, yeah, that, that group of men all headed out to the mountain. Um, they set up, they originally thought it was going to be quite like a normal climbing trip, just all off trying to, to hit the summit and it wouldn't be too complicated. But Mo turned up with all of his filming equipment because he had been given a chance to make a, a, a mountaineering film for an award. And then Chris had also signed up to promote Bovril, um, which if you're not British, is... I don't even know what Bovril is. Is it like beef stock or something? I think you can drink it by itself. Let me Google. Live Google. It's a thick and salty meat extract paste, similar to a yeast extract. Um, Its appearance is similar to Marmite and Vegemite. I don't know if I've ever had Bovril, you know? But yes, it was kind of made in the 70s and I think it was one of those, like, one of warming and full of nutrients type type foods so yeah they basically had signed um up chris to promote bovril and they wanted him kind of to to show him climbing and talking to the camera as he did uh to support bovril and in the in the book that i read which i will talk about at the end um he said i had hoped to climb the yoga with as little fuss and bother as we climb in europe north america or the andes and definitely without the encumbrance of film gear fixed ropes radios and obligations to major sponsors um, because yeah, he basically uh, Bovril had paid quite a significant sum uh, to the whole team in order to to yeah promote this as part of their part of their climb. So they headed out to the mountain uh, and they set up a base camp and advanced base camp, uh, and they basically did what we what we already know because we've done many many a climbing chat by now. Uh, so they started going up and down the mountain, acclimatizing themselves, getting used to the cold, getting used to uh, to how it is, putting fixed ropes, all of that, that type of thing. Uh, but on one of the first times that they did start climbing up, uh, Doug Scott, who was climbing above, accidentally dislodged a rock and that fell down and it hit Tut's thigh. Uh, thankfully, it didn't break anything at that point, but he was in a lot of pain and they had to descend back down to base camp uh, and, and rest for a long time to try and get recovery back. So that kind of slowed them down, meant that they didn't have as much time to to try and get back to the, the summit. Uh, but whilst they were rest, uh, resting, they did continue to fix ropes and they had uh, fixed ropes up to about 21,000 feet. So they were they were pretty pretty accomplished. Whilst Tut was recovering, they Nick and Chris decided that they were going to go ahead and attempt a summit, uh, while the rest kind of continued to to rest and lay ropes. And so they headed off with all their equipment, but they didn't didn't come back on time. So a few days passed. Soon they were kind of two to three days late. Uh, and that, that by that point, the rest of the group was getting very worried where they were, were they okay? And they were kind of making some plans to, to maybe go and, and find them. Uh, but luckily they did then, after about three days, make an appearance at the camp. But they were pretty worse for wear. Uh, they were very badly sunburnt. Uh, they both like couldn't really talk. They had like bad chests, bad throats. Uh, but they weren't, they unfortunately hadn't been able to 
summit. Uh, it'd just taken too long. The climb was very technical, very hard at the top, uh, they, and they just ran out of supplies. And so they tried to to kind of wait up there and 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 keep keep going, which is why they were late. But they eventually just had to admit that they couldn't do it, and they turned turned around. And Nick, when he returned, he wasn't in a very good kind of space at that point. He wasn't very well. Uh, so he decided to, to go to, back to base camp and just wait for the rest to, to finish their climb. He wasn't going to do another summit attempt. So a few more days passed and then it was time for the final summit attempt, the last chance they had to try and get to the top uh, before they were due to, to turn around and go home. Uh, they knew from that first summit with Chris and Nick that they needed more equipment and more supplies, so they took a lot more, uh, and it ended up being four of them that set out to do this summit bid. Um, and that was Doug, Chris, Mo, and Clive. And they, it all seemed to go pretty well. Uh, they made pretty good time uh, and eventually made a cave in the snow just under the kind of very large technical climb to the summit. So they were in a good good place. They had a had a camp that they could then uh, push to the top. So at that point, Chris, who had done this previous summit bid, was pretty tired at that point. So they decided to split in two. And so Doug and Clive set off and they were going to try and make the summit. Um, and Chris and Mo waited in the cave uh, for them. And then they were maybe going to try and do it the next day. So Doug and Clive set off uh, and they were roped to each other and headed to the summit. Uh, so they mainly free climbed. So like I said, still using ropes, but um, no equipment to actually help them get up. Uh, and it was very, very hard climbing at that, that altitude, especially. And they occasionally used a little bit of assistance um, and yeah, just just pushed to the top. No extra oxygen or anything. Very excitingly, they did finally made it over the ridge and to the final summit. Um, and just as they arrived, the sun had set. But they thought, oh, it's fine. Getting back down to where the cave is shouldn't be too bad because it's just kind of a straight abseil down um, from, from where they had been climbing. And so Doug went first and he started on down and was trying to, he had kind of done one abseil and was trying to move his clip over to the next abseil. Uh, but unfortunately, he stepped on some ice that he didn't see. Um, and in that moment, he just lost all control. And because he was in between the ropes, he just went flying so his feet slid off and he just fell down quite a significant portion of the mountain and he tried to like slow his fall tried to try to grab rope everything but he just wasn't successful um and he eventually yeah kind of made it to to the next ledge where he managed to stop himself but um he thankfully was alive at this point which was very good uh, but he tried to stand up after doing this fall um, and he put weight on one leg and then he's like oh that didn't work that leg was broken tried the other leg oh no that leg was also broken so he had broken both legs in the fall it was late at night and he was on the top of the mountain. And as we know from all of our other tales, that's not a good place to be. Um, you don't want to be injured that high up. Um, and it is going to be a very difficult way down. <music> 
But luckily in this case, uh, the people that he was with were so dedicated to getting him down that they really worked hard together to do that. So Chris followed Dan after him and thankfully Chris took it in a stride. He'd done rescues before uh, and he knew that he would get them down. Um, and thankfully, even though he had broken his legs, the majority of the climbing down was abseiling. And so what they could do is they could... Chris could abseil Doug down so that he could actually make it make it down and I think it was touching the void where they did the abseil down yeah 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 I was touching the void because that's how he went into the void uh where yeah kind of like they they descend one person and then stop and then descend the next person um so yeah they managed to do the same thing and managed to get him down um to where they um well they started abseiling down and they made a bit of progress but they, they it just got too late at night so they carved a shelf and spent the night on a ledge waiting for the next day uh, and they said it was the coldest bivouac that they'd ever done um and at this point no food no water very much not in a good good situation for them the next morning, they did some more abseiling and thankfully made it down to the cave where Mo and Clive were. And they could kind of, Mo and Clive could see their progress because they they actually saw the fall. So they knew that they were making their way down. Um, and they had like carved some steps and uh, a, a way across so that when they did get to the bottom, they could make their way across over to the cave. And that was the thing with Doug is that he had broken the bottom part of his legs. So actually he was able to crawl quite well. Um, and so he did a lot of crawling over the next few days. Uh, but yeah, he managed to crawl his way over and they managed to get into the cave. At that point, they still didn't have any food, but they did have some tea, water, that type of thing. So they could rehydrate at least. Um, and they went to sleep, ready to descend and get down to the bottom the next day. Up until that point, the area had had quite favourable weather because it was like quite a good time of year to be climbing. But the next morning... Of course, of course they did. Uh, they woke up to a giant storm, um, which is very typical. Um, and, you know, like I said, it's 77, so they didn't have particularly good uh, weather forecasts. It was very much just looking up and seeing where the clouds were and what might be coming their way. Uh, but yeah, they woke up to this huge storm and their snow cave had been like snowed in. So they basically like had to dig themselves out. But because there was now so much fresh snow, it had covered a lot of like the steps that they had made. It was covered a lot of their ropes and it was just very hard to, to make any progress. And so they decided that they would wait another night um, and see see how it was the next day. The next day, it was still bad, but they decided that they had no choice. Uh, they needed to get going and abseil down. Uh, so they continued to abseil and yeah, like horrendous conditions. And they would carve out seats in the snow uh, for Doug to rest in between the the different abseils, which is, yeah, similar to what we talked about in Touching the Void. But the tra traverses, so like when he had to go across rather than abseil down were the worst because he had to crawl. He was very slow. Obviously, the rest of the group couldn't carry him because that's heavy and as we know from like our Everest chats like our K2 chats if someone isn't able to move under their own steam that means a rescue is basically impossible um but thankfully he was able to crawl he was just very slow and it was just horrendous like the route got worse the storm got worse and they just had to kind of like just focus on like one thing at a time like I'm just gonna get to that rock just gonna get to this next episode I'm just gonna do this you can't you can't think in the big picture you're just gonna do one tiny bit at a time um which I think is a good thing for life right <laughs> just one one little bit at a time eventually you will get there but actually at one point 
Chris, who was uh, also abseiling, fell as well due to like some uneven ropes. Um, and he seemed okay, and they made it back to Camp 3. Um, so he seemed okay immediately after the accident wasn't. <laughs> but they did make it back to Camp 3, where they were able to... They spent most of the time trying to bring their frozen fingers and toes back to life um, and then kind of spent more time trying to wait out the storm. And so, yeah, they stayed there. They played cards. They rested. But unfortunately, Chris kept getting worse. So like I said, he seemed all right after after his fall. Um, but then he just got worse. And so he had lots of coughing, had like huge pain in his ribs. So uh, he had basically broken a load of his ribs. Um, and he himself was worried that he might have pulmonary edema, which we talked about in... I want to say Everest, where we talked about the different ways that altitude can impact you, and the 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 key to any of those any of those conditions is to basically descend as quickly as you can. And so Chris really wanted to carry on and to try and descend further, but the rest wanted to wait out the storm. And there was a quote in the book: <laughs> "Most conclusion put in, in in his inimitable way was, don't worry, Chris, it's probably only pneumonia,' and added that it wouldn't be helpful to spend any more time out in the swirling spindrift. Despite the fact that Mo had just announced he had not felt his toes for nearly a week, and that all of Clive's digits were also numb, and despite it being our fourth day without food, we decided to give it one more day. We had found a box of sugar cubes and a pile of used tea bags in the snow, with plenty of life left in them, so we were assured of at least a dozen more brews." And I really like that quote because um, clearly they're in a bad way, but they're like, it's okay. We can have some cups of tea. We'll be fine. Which is just so British, right? That's just so British to be like, well, we can have 12 cups of tea at least. So we may as well wait here and drink tea. And then eventually we'll try and climb again. Uh, but yes, eventually they did make it off again. Doug being in huge pain and had very swollen knees because obviously he'd been crawling for so long and over like really harsh um, harsh terrain. And Chris was getting worse by the day. Um, he had the broken ribs and was getting complications because of that, but there just wasn't really anything they could do. When they got to advanced base camp, it had basically disappeared. So it had been totally covered by snow, uh, which they were... Like they were disheartened by, but they just kind of carried on to be like, we've just got to get down to base camp. Uh, they did try and cushion Doug's knees at this point because um, uh, by this point it had been eight days since he had broke his leg. So it was a very long, hard slog to get back down the mountain. Eventually, Clive, who was uh, one of the two feeling good, um, went ahead to base camp um, and kind of left them and, and went ahead quicker. And he returned with food. Um, but the news that Tut and Nick, who were the two that had waited down the bottom for them, uh, had left. Um, and they had hopefully kind of gone off to find help because they knew that the team were eight days later than they planned. Uh, but thankfully, they uh, had left some stores. They had kind of hidden them somewhere for them and left some notes saying, this is what we're doing, here are the stores, that type of thing. Uh, so Chris and Mo went went back uh, and kind of headed very quickly back to base camp to, to eat and then Clive and Doug eventually made it. By the time Clive and Doug had got there, Mo, who was the other one that was feeling quite well, has had actually grabbed some food and then just shot off down the valley trying to chase Nick to to tell them that they were alive and it was okay and to get go in and get help and, you know, get people who could stretcher Doug and Chris down off the mountain. And thankfully, Mo, how he had any energy after nine days 
descending on this mountain. He managed to walk for a day and a half to catch up with Nick, um, who was absolutely overwhelmed when he he found out that they um, were alive. And it said that twice, whilst Mo was was walking, he fell asleep as he was walking. Uh, And so he decided that that was a bit too dangerous, so he would walk for an hour and then have a nap for five minutes and then carry on which sounds like my worst nightmare, if I'm honest. But yes, yeah, soon he had a little, a little bit of a longer nap. He had a couple of hours and then carried on. Uh, thankfully, he did find them, though, and Nick and all the porters turned around, uh, took loads of supplies, medical equipment, uh, you know, painkillers, everything back to base camp. But it did take them five more days at base camp for them to finally all get back and to, to stretcher them out. So yeah, it, has been, it had been a long old time. Um, and they did eventually make the the full walk out and a helicopter came to airlift Doug out and to the hospital. Um, And in this helicopter, um, on arriving to the hospital, there was like 20 feet to go in order to land. The whole engine of the helicopter cut out and it just crashed, Um, which like there were thankfully no injuries, but the pilot was like totally shell-shocked because they were like, that could have literally happened at any time. But thankfully, it just happened when they were 20 feet above. And yeah, it didn't it didn't kill them. But how terrifying is that? To just be like, oh, I've survived breaking my legs and descending a mountain for two weeks, only to be killed by the helicopter that, that that's then taking me to the hospital. Um, but thankfully, it was all right. But yeah, that would be scary. And I finally went in a helicopter a few weeks ago. and It was awesome. So, thankfully, much better serviced these days than in 1977. But yes, it, because of the dodgy, they basically only had one helicopter, so they managed to get Doug out, but then they couldn't get Chris out for ages, for like another week, because they had to wait for the helicopter to be fixed and or to find another one. But yeah, so they managed to get there, and they put both of Doug's legs in plaster, um, and three weeks and one day after the accident, he flew back to the UK. So yeah, imagine that. Breaking both your legs and then it being three weeks, really, before you could um, get home and get proper uh, care. So when he went to the UK, they were, he went to the hospital and they uh, did a load of surgery and reset them and pinned them and all of that type of thing. Um, and they said if he had left it any longer, uh, then they potentially would have had to have rebroken his legs to put them back together. Ugh, which is awful. Um, but thankfully, he, he did make it back. Make it back in time. So yeah, thankfully in this case, it all went it all went pretty well and they did all survive. And that was mainly due to just such like selflessness and support from the rest of the group and also the fact that people were hurt but they weren't hurt to the extent of collapse, you know, not being able to move themselves, that type of thing. So I think it was obviously a very tragic and really hard experience but was wasn't as bad as it could have been. And so they did manage to get everyone out. And yeah, and just such help, not just from the the guys on the climb, but also like Nick and Tut who had been at the bottom, like they had had such a stressful time just waiting for them. And I think that that was, what was the one? See this, I've, got, I've done so many mountains now, they just all blur together. Um, Haramosh. Yes, I think it was Haramosh where the, that, that had the same one where he they had someone like waiting at the... Yes, yeah, it was Haramosh where they had a guy like waiting at the bottom and it was just like so stressful because it's like, when do you leave? Like, when do you decide actually um, 
I don't think they're coming back um, and and go. And so it's just such a such a stressful time for everyone involved, really. Um, and he didn't know whether to stay or go or, or when to get help. Uh, but yes, thankfully, every, everything came together um, and it was all okay. And yeah, Doug continued to have a successful climbing career over many, many years. Uh, the pain did come back to haunt him when he got older and he had to get the pins removed. But I think he, I, I think he only died a few years ago. Um, so he basically climbed to a very old age, uh, which was very good. But I mean, the yoga itself is just such a, such a hard mountain to climb that, yeah, following this ascent, no one successfully climbed it for um, almost 25 years. Uh, the second ascent was in 2001. Um, and in between that, there had been a lot of attempts, but it was just such a climbing, a challenging climb that they, yeah, couldn't do it. So yeah, I hope that that you enjoyed that. Um, I really, yeah, it's two two tales that I enjoyed that I thought were vaguely linked to each other. Uh, but yes, let's talk about references because there were lots of good ones. So the t- the two that I talked about at the be- at the beginning. First of all, the Dawn Wall. Uh, which was Tommy Caldwell's Climb of the Dorm Wall. Uh, was very good, really good film. Uh, I very much enjoyed it. I, yeah, it really brings to life, like, what what climbing is like there, what the kind of, like, history of climbing is in that area, uh, everything like that. I think I watched it on Netflix. I think. And then the second one was Free Solo, which, again, really good film, which was... Um, Alex Honnold free soloing El Cap and that's very much more like a I don't know more like a character study of him which I think is quite interesting because uh, he's you know a very if I mean if you're going to free solo that you have to be a specific type of personality right so it kind of like follows him and him and his girlfriend and how he prepared for the climb and like mentally prepared for it and then actually doing the climb itself and that was really good as well so I recommend that and I think I watched that one on Disney plus uh, so I highly recommend both of those films if you want to watch a bit more about climbing um, and then the ogre book. I read a book. The book was all right. Um, it was written by Doug Scott, so it's um, you know, right in in first person. The first half of it though is like a history of the area. So if you're into history, um, you will enjoy that. But I didn't enjoy the first half that much because I don't I don't mind history, but yeah, it was a bit a bit too much history for me. Uh, and then the second half is that the story of the ascent and the descent Um, and it's called the ogre biography of a mountain and the dramatic story of the first ascent by doug scott um so yeah it's pretty short anyway uh, but if you wanted another another mountainous read then yeah i recommend you give that one a go Cool. Well, thank you so much for listening. Like I said, do follow me on Instagram at when it goes wrong pod. Um, if you don't have Instagram and you want to chat, you can email me uh, when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com. Uh, and please do tell a friend uh, so we can get more people listening um, and do send me any episode requests. Got a few more episodes left in the season and I kind of can't decide what to do next. So yeah, send any suggestions my way. 